Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, we visit with M. William Phelps, the New York Times bestselling author of We Thought We Knew You, a gripping true crime investigation into the poisoning of Mary Yoder and the dark revenge plot behind her death. On September 17, 2015, Mary Yoder died a suspicious death. Her husband, Bill Yoder, is a suspect. An anonymous letter also points to her son, Adam Yoder. And then evidence points to Adam's jilted ex-girlfriend and former employee of the Yoders, Caitlin Conley. Who killed Mary Yoder, and how did they do it? Phelps expertly breaks down the events that led to Mary's death and the investigation that followed. Greg Olson, New York Times bestselling author of Where Monsters Hide, had this to say about the book. It's a nonfiction thriller of the highest literary caliber, only an investigative journalist like Phelps, at the top of any true crime writer's game, could accomplish. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thanks, Landis, for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's um, and congratulations on the book, by the way. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's um, I think it's number forty-three. That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. All right, just keep climbing, right? Keep climbing the charts. Yeah, that's it. I just keep keep plugging away, get on the hamster wheel in the morning, and keep going. You know. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed reading, and I read it quickly uh, over a weekend. And uh, you know, even though in these true crime books, you kind of know, you think you kind of know. 
what's going to happen. There's always something you have no idea about. And I'm sure that's probably the way it is when you're investigating these situations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I do, I choose the cases I choose. I mean, if I know everything there is to know about something, then I'm uninterested in it. You know what I'm saying? I, 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 I like to have questions that need to be answered. I like to uh, get the story behind the story, if you will. Um, you know, and that goes for uh, more with the books than it does podcasting. Podcasting, I like, I like a lot of it to be undiscovered. But with the book, yeah, I need to have questions that need to be answered for sure. Yeah, and that's sort of a uh, good good segue there. Uh, I'm going to just go ahead and tease that out now because listeners, uh, Matthew's got a great podcast uh, out there in conjunction with iHeartRadio. It's called Paper Ghosts. And after this episode, talking about his book, we're going to jump over to the Patreon channel. I'll tell you more about that at the end where we're going to talk about the differences between writing true crime and podcasting true crime. We'll talk a little bit about his series, Paper Ghost, uh, which is fantastic as well. All right, Matthew, a little bit about you. Um, You've been celebrated in the true crime world by various publications. You've been called by Library Journal um, an expert in the world of true crime and the mind of a serial killer. The New York Post says you're a true crime veteran. Uh, another author says the America's finest true crime author, Real Crime Magazine, master of true crime. Linda Hirsch, creator of Syndicate Columnist, says you're the king of true crime. And Radio America calls you the nation's leading authority on the mind of the female murderer. So with that background, I'm just curious what got you started along this path? Um, well, Landis, that's an interesting question I get a lot. And I mean, the the honest answer is that, you know, the day before I became a true crime author, uh, person, true crime persona, author, whatever, I didn't know I was becoming one. I mean, it was back in the 90s. And, you know, I, I was just a journalist looking for a great story. And I happened to l- l- latch onto a story in Northampton, Massachusetts of a of a bunch of murders that were taking place at a hospital. And so I just started looking at that as a story to write about. Uh, I didn't look at it as true crime or anything. I didn't, I didn't pigeonhole it into some genre because I, I really, I didn't read genre stuff. You know, I just read books that interested me. So I started to look at that and I ended up writing a book about that case called perfect poison. And it was my first book and it was very successful. So I think the day that published, I became a true crime person, a true crime author. And uh, I said, okay. And uh, they said, you're very successful. So what's your next true crime book about? Yeah. And, and, and so I just took it from there. You know, I just kind of, um, I mean, my background isn't in criminology. I mean, my background, I mean, I never went to college. I never graduated high school, to, to be honest. I wrote a book about that, all of that, um, called Dangerous Ground, where I talked about that. But I lived kind of a uh, hard life. Um, there were some criminals around me when I was growing up. So uh, that's my background in crime uh, is is the real thing, I guess. I guess that's true. I also read somewhere um, that you were also sort of touched by this uh, as well because you had an unsolved murder of your sister-in-law, which uh, which sort of did you, did you investigate that as well? Were you involved in that? Well, no, I wasn't really involved in it. I have become sense, but, um, you know, what that gives me is it gives me the foundation of when I sit in front of victims' families and when I talk to victims' families and, 
you know, I've probably interviewed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of victims' family members uh, for TV, for podcasting, for books. You know, there's a common bond there. I know exactly what they're going through. Um, I know what, uh, you know, there's something I call uh, the ripple effect of murder where, you know, a murder takes place in a family and the ripple effect is how it affects everybody over the years. Um, And it does have an effect on people, especially with an unsolved case or a missing person case. Yeah, that comes out both in the book, uh, We Thought We Knew You, and also in the podcast, Paper Ghost, which we're going to be talking about. But a little bit about your energy level here. Um, you, you, uh, you've you written um, seven books about serial killers. Um, uh, in 2017, you finished a five-year project uh with Happy Face Killer, Dangerous Ground, Your Friendship with a Serial Killer. You've been uh, an author of 49 fiction books, over 100 television shows, winners of all these awards, uh, the Paper Ghost podcast we're talking about. Uh, there was the you executive produced To Catch a Killer. And I, I'm just wondering, uh, where does the energy come from? <laughs> you know, I'm just, Landis, I'm one of these people. Um, when I get up in the morning, um, I'm still very grateful for being able to do what I love to do. And, you know, uh, I'm just very humbled by it all. And I, you know, when you work for yourself, uh, you're always, you're always kind of, I'm smiling, uh, because you're always kind of chasing that paper, if you will. You know, you you always get up in the morning thinking uh, this could all be taken away from me. So I better hustle today, you know, and and that's what I've done. I've just I've just kind of worked at my own pace, which is a lot faster than a lot of people. Um, I'm able to juggle many different projects in the same day. Um, You know, I I mean, I do dedicate I get up five o'clock in the morning every day, sometimes a lot earlier. And I do dedicate four or five hours just to writing. And then once that's done, I can then uh, kind of clock out of that and go into the production mode, uh, do some TV work, do my podcasting work. Um, I mean, right now I'm, I'm strictly focused on podcasting because I have a contract for uh, which we'll talk about some some stuff. But, um, yeah, I, I, I have to get up and write. It's just in my I don't feel right unless I get up and I start writing in the morning. That's great. Well, you've investigated the minds of, 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 of all these killers, you know, why they do what they do, why they're motivated to do what they do. And you've written about it. And I've now got you on the podcast and I want to kind of get into the mind of a true crime investigator. Um, you talked about your beginnings, you know, how you got started, but that was sort of your writing about this story and it sort of fell into place. You wrote this book and you started into it, but what motivates you, uh, Matthew time and again to, uh, to get into these stories? I, I think it's answers. I mean, uh, it's, it's unanswered questions, as I said in the beginning. I mean, if we want to, if we want to, if I just want to use, we thought we knew you as an example, what, what interested me right away that I needed to find out was I looked at this case and half the town of Utica, New York uh, stood behind the murderer during the trial and does to this day. And included in half that town are two of the victim's family members, two of her sisters, say, say the woman, the, the person who was convicted did not do it, did not do it. Um, and when I see that, that interests me immensely. 
okay, I want, now I'm interested in, wow, if half the town believes this and half the town doesn't, where's the answer? Because there's an answer in there somewhere. I can find it, you know, and, and uh, uh, go ahead. No, no, that's a good transition to the book itself. I'm looking at the cover here, the title, We Thought We Knew You, um, which uh, sort of suggests, uh, you know, you did it and you're somebody we never thought would do this. Uh, it could have been the son. It could have been the son's girlfriend. It could have been the husband. But we thought we knew you and we didn't. And, and that, you know, that that describes a sociopath, because most people who are affected by the crimes or the psychopathy of a sociopath, they, Jesus, we thought we thought we knew you. I mean, well, why did you do this to us? Well, the 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 answer is no. You you don't know me. You think you know me. You know, we can work next to somebody eight hours a day in a cubicle and go out to lunch with them and think we know them, but we don't know them. We can live with somebody, think we know them, and we don't know them. So, you know, that's another motivation for me is to get behind the mind of the person who commits one of these crimes and really dig in and, and see what, what, you know, what's driving this person. Why, why are they doing things they do? And, and generally with sociopaths, the answer is always the same, you know, how'd you find out about the story? How did I find out about this story? Um, well, I mean, I, I have certain, uh, let me say I have certain, avenues that uh i look at every single day uh um uh, just to look at stories and stories that i become interested in producers tv producers write to me uh text me story ideas uh tv people um pe- people that i've come to know over the years is where i get most of my stories now all right well that's great one of the things about this story and we're going to be getting into the uh to, to the characters in the book, uh, the, the people that are involved in this real life situation. We're going to be talking about motives. We're going to be talking about some of the evidence, but uh, like most, uh, it's, a lot of times in true crime, uh, particularly in paper ghosts, which we're going to talk about the podcast, you don't know why these girls are disappearing. You don't know, you know, who kidnapped them, what happened in this case, we have Mary Yoder. She dies, uh, but the doctors can't, figure it out. And that's going to tie into the reading you're going to do here in just a second. But before you read this little segment uh, where they discover what happened, could you just set this up with uh, sort of what the day was like uh, going into this and what the relationship supposedly was like between Mary Yoder and her husband and how they were working together and how life seemed to be perfect? Yeah. you know, what you have is you have Mary Yoder, who's a chiropractor. Her husband's a chiropractor. They run an office together. Um, their son, Adam Yoder, was working for them at one time. He then brings in his girlfriend, Caitlin Conley, as the office manager. So, And then Adam leaves. So it's like, it's like Mary and Bill, her husband, they don't actually work together every day. You know, one takes one day, the next takes the next day. And it's just kind of a small little office and they service the community. Um, And there's one day Bill's at home and uh, Mary's working and she comes home from work that evening and they have a conversation on the phone and she's like, I'm not feeling well. She comes kind of rushing into the house and immediately into the bathroom. She's vomiting. She's all kinds of stuff coming out of her and she's really, really sick. Um, Ultimately brings her to the hospital. 
uh, and you know, and it what it seems like is just your normal uh, everyday bug that's going around, be it a stomach bug, be it the flu, whatever it is. Lots of people have had it. The doctors at the hospital are like, yeah, this is the, we've been seeing a lot of this. Um, but then she progressively gets a lot worse. Um, and um, the dynamic between Mary and Bill is that, you know, they're planning the trip of their life. They're planning to sell the business. They're planning on going uh, on, a, on a cruise, really a tour of Europe for a month. Um, they're entirely in love as far as I could see the, the nothing to indicate that there was anything but love between the two of them. Uh, they've been married a long time, 30 years or so. And, and, you know, and of course there's issues, but you know, they're happy. Uh, the family is kind of tight knit. Um, and life is going perfect really as life is kind of going textbook as it should be for a, a family. And then all of a sudden, Mary takes this this dive. She's in the hospital that night, and she takes a dive, uh, a deadly dive the next day and, you know, goes in codes like eight times. And ultimately, it's her daughter, who is a doctor herself, who says to her father, says, listen, we, we need to let mom go. I mean, she could code 10 more times, but she's she's gone, you know. Yeah, the description of that in the book was... Uh really horrific because she was uh, trapped. Her body was being bloated. She, the only thing that was moving at one point was her eyes. You could see her eyes. It's it, it, She knows maybe there's no way out, but uh, what, a, what a terrible you know way to die. We're going to find out why in just a minute. Uh, one thing I will plant just for the listeners, we're going to come back to it though, is uh, Adam Yoder, the son, um, had been sick too a couple of months earlier with symptoms that were somewhat similar to Mary's, which uh, got to be a point that uh, Matthew researched uh, in his book. But Matthew, with that set up, would you mind reading this little segment we've got for the book? Sure. So this, you know, this section of the book is, you know, she's died and uh, the medical examiner has her body and the medical examiner is kind of baffled, really. Um, both doctors believe there had been a toxin introduced into Mary's system and that toxin killed her. Toxicology was sent out. All of it came back negative. This was even more disconcerting and baffling. The results were another abnormality, telling both doctors they must now begin a process of pinpointing which toxin might have made Mary sick and killed her. Essentially, Dr. Clark said, what we do is we start looking for more exotic things we don't commonly see, but every now and then we do see. And what he's talking about is cyanide, arsenic, barium, which is kind of a, an earth metal, an alkaline. Um, antimony, a metalloid. So what they're looking at, just to ad lib a little bit here, is what they're looking at is something different than the norm. Samples were sent to an outside lab specifically focused on those four toxins. The lab in the ME's office did not routinely test for specific metals or poisons. A general panel was conducted. Each of those results also came back negative. Quite puzzled by the results, Dr. Clark felt there had to be a rare toxin they were missing. As they began talking about next steps, a major problem arose. The lab said they had almost no blood left to send out for additional testing. 
By then, Mary's body had been released and cremated. One of the toxicologists involved called Clark. Listen, we still don't have an answer, but we have a very limited sample left. So whatever you want to test for next, you should choose it carefully because I do not know how much we can get out of the final sample. Clark met with Dr. Stoppager. Let's take a walk across the street, Stoppager suggested, standing, beckoning Clark to follow him. It was a suggestion that would change everything. Across the street from the office was the poison control center. Stoppager introduced Clark to two poison control center doctors. The advantage of utilizing the poison control center was its vast library of medical data collected on poisoning cases. That data correlated consistencies, dynamics, and anomalies in death by poison cases. But more important, similarities. The data can, in effect, point a pathologist in a direction by simply linking a finding to a previous death by toxin. The database searches through symptoms, pairs them with the medical examiner's findings, thus looking for cases matching one another. Parallels. As Clark dealt with the PCC, additional medical records from Mary Yoder's time at the hospital came in. Clark now had Mary's full chart. He could provide that information, symptoms, reactions, medications, to the PCC as part of her history. More data, better results. She had multiple cardiac arrests before death, Clark explained to his contact at the PCC. The PCC doctor made a recommendation after studying all the documentation and PCC data reviewing the autopsy and comparing it to other PCC database cases. What do you think, Clark asked. One toxin kept coming up, colchicine. Colchicine is an anti-inflammatory generally prescribed to treat Mediterranean fever and gout. Inflammatory arthritis, gout basically, was one reason why people went to a chiropractor. Could Mary have been poisoned by error? Stoppager and Clark agreed to send that last sample of Mary's blood to the lab and request a colchicine comparison test. And what'd they find, Matthew? They found that Mary was murdered by colchicine poisoning and she had an enormous amount of colchicine in her system and Mary did not have gout nor did she have Mediterranean fever. So they had a murder case on their hands right away. They knew. I tell you, as I was reading this, it sort of gave me a pause to reflect. Uh, I went through a little stage having some gout <laughs> and somebody prescribed the culture scene for me. And, and now that I think about that, I'm going to be very, very circumspect on, on using that. Landis, <laughs> yeah. there is such a fine line between treating gout with colchicine and being poisoned by colchicine. I mean, yeah. You know, you, the, the pictures in the book, I, I, I tried to outline how much colchicine it takes to kill someone. And we're talking about dust. We're talking about, you know, granules of sugar, you know, not many. Yeah. And, and you're dead. There's no antidote to it. Once, once you're in the hospital with colchicine poisoning, you're done. All right. Fair warning. I've, I've noted that as a recovering trial lawyer here. I'm going to put that warning label on my, on my colchicine bottle. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the, the main characters in this book for a moment. We've already talked about Mary. 
uh, 60 years old when she died. They had a chiropractic clinic together, she and her husband, Bill. Um, the, the interesting thing about this is that whenever you think that one character or, or one real life person, I'm calling them characters, but they are in some respects. Right. But when you find out about one set of facts about somebody like Bill Yoder, the fact that he loved his wife, they're planning the trip, they've been married all this time, something else comes out. Um, a relationship, you know, with, believe it or not, one of the sisters of Mary Yoder, which became important later in dividing the family, correct? Yeah. I mean, that in that relationship was interesting because everything I heard going in was, oh, yeah, you know, Bill had a relationship going on with Mary's sister, Catherine. And I'm like, well, that's motive for murder uh, uh, for sure. So I looked into that and immediately I found, well, yeah, they had a relationship, but it didn't start until after Mary's death. You know, and everybody's telling me these 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 pro uh, pro defense people are telling me, oh no, no, no. Well, there's zero evidence that the relationship started before Mary's death, and there's a ton of evidence available that it started after. Yeah, and and, and still, uh, the, some of the sisters who are actually supporting um, the person who's placed on trial here. Uh, they sort of round up a witness who allegedly saw Bill and this other sister, you know, kissing passionately on the porch weeks before Mary Yoder's death. So you still, even to the end, you've got this other, you, you know, story being told. And, and the, the only problem I had with that story is, I mean, it's a great story. It's salacious. It offers everything. The only problem I had with it is that person would not go on the record, would not uh, sign an affidavit, that person, you know, um, would not corroborate that story. Uh, secondly, um, you know, on the day that's supposed to be happening, you know, Bill's nowhere near the porch of, mm-hmm. of, of Mary Yoder's sister. Um, so you, you need evidence to back up statements as, as a trial lawyer yourself, Landis, you, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to, you know, this people can lie documentation and forensic evidence and and hard evidence doesn't so people will lie all day you know well you know what amazes me is and i'm I'm always sometimes fooled by juries i think i've got an ironclad case and then something happens or something comes up but i'm reading this book and, and about three quarters of the way through i'm saying this case is over you know and then you know there's a hung jury and all this kind of stuff and i'm thinking how much evidence does it take to convince somebody Anyway, we might come back to that theme, but let's talk about the main characters here. Uh, Adam Yoder uh, and Caitlin Connolly, they were the ones whose, I think, law enforcement had their eyes on the most. And they were they were the young youngsters in, in this. Uh, Adam, the son, Caitlin, his girlfriend. Adam gets Caitlin the job at his parents' uh, chiropractic clinic. Uh, they had a tumultuous relationship. I've never seen, uh, you know, a text fight like these kids had i mean i don't think they ever talked on the phone they just texted like you know war and peace to each other that i mean that's the that's the thing today and that's what what generates a lot of information for me today is that people don't talk in the phone anymore they text and what people don't realize is is those texts are being saved somewhere and you know law enforcement can have access to that if they need it so yeah so a lot of evidence became clear to me just in the texting alone, you know, the dates, the times, what's being said. Um, and tumultuous, I think, is one way to describe that relationship. Uh, dysfunctional, um, abusive, 
I think those are two other ways to describe that relationship. Yeah, because, you know, Adam is accused of raping his girlfriend, but he can't remember it because he sometimes passes out. He drinks a lot. He does drugs. Uh, but he, he has this nagging thought. I, I just don't think I did that. He starts investigating himself <laughs> to some extent. Then you got Caitlin Conley, and she seems to be, I don't know, the all-American girl. She's in this family, you know, that's a respected family in the in the community. Uh, she's loaning Adam money. She appears to be looking after him. And yet she tells him, you know, she got pregnant. And when he looks into it, there's no possible way that that could have happened. Yeah. I, and, and there's a theme here building. And here's the theme. Every time Adam says to her, Katie, I'm done with you. I'm breaking up with you. Bang. She does something. First, it's a faked pregnancy. And I, I could find no record any because she said she went to the hospital for the fake pregnancy and got it taken care of. It was a uh, she kind of had a miscarriage, uh, um, she said, and she was at the emergency room and they had to give her almost like uh, a chemo drug to get rid of the baby and this whole thing. So. All right. So when I when I hear that, I'm like, oh, there must be tons of documentation to support that. But no hospital in the entire area could support that claim. She had never gone to the hospital unless she flew to Denver or something to go to the hospital and flew back to New York that same night. Um, so that's the first time. The second time he breaks up with her and he says, that's it. I'm done with you. She says, oh, yeah. Don't, don't you remember? You raped me. You raped me. And you know what? I have the pictures to prove it. And she sends him pictures of herself all banged up, bruised up, scratched. The only problem is when you look at those pictures, you know, they're time stamped, which she didn't know. They're time stamped three months after the alleged rape. So, huh? All right. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So, okay. So I, I don't want to give, I want you tell me how much you want to talk about here, but I will say this, you've got, Caitlin Conley and you've got Adam and his father and in listening to paper ghosts, you say this from your experience, you know, the, the, the husband is always suspect number one when the wife is murdered. Then they're looking within the family as well. And Adam is, is one of these guys that's got this sort of checkered past. Nobody's really looking at Caitlin Conley. Um, and, and the, the contrast between the males in the courtroom and Caitlin in the courtroom I mean, that's a pretty large contrast to somebody just looking, you know, from the outside in at these people. Talk about what they would have seen of those people when they're looking. If you're on the jury looking at these people, what's your first impressions? Well, your first impression is that Bill Yoder, Mary's husband, is kind of a, he was described to me as strange, eccentric, you know, not normal, uh, you know, all this stuff. And I, and I spent a lot of time with Bill. I interviewed him for a long time. And um, he's a philosopher. For crying out loud, he's a philosopher. All right. Well, what do you expect with a philosopher? I mean, you, you expect somebody who is extremely intuitive, extremely deep. Their personality type it comes out in a way that tells us, well, geez, that's different from me. It's different from what I run into every day. That's all. He's different. He's just he's, he thinks all the time. Um, and then you look at Adam and you see all kinds of, you know, alcoholism, drug addiction that he admits to. You see him admitting that he was violent. You know, uh, you see him admitting that he got into an underage uh, uh, relationship with an underage girl once. He admits all of this stuff. 
Does that make him a, a, a good suspect? Yeah, sure. Sure. And then when they find Colchicine under the front seat of his Jeep, does that make him a good suspect? Well, hell yeah, that makes him a great suspect, you know. Um, but then again, as a detective, you know, your job is to exclude, not include. So, you know, when you're Detective Mark Van Amme, who did an incredible job here, not only with the investigation, but with the interrogations, which become ultimately very important in this, this whole case. Um, you know, you're, you're looking at stuff and it's all pointing in one direction. You know, there's nothing, you know, everything you're looking at with, with, with Adam and Bill seems to exclude them, not include them, you know, and you're looking, you're looking, well, okay, where's that evidence that's going to say, bang. Now you start looking at the other suspect, the third suspect, Katie Conley, and you start to see stuff that's baffling. You know, and baffling in a way that, is this person that stupid? You know, that was a question I had. You know this case, so you know that a lot of this case is built around computer forensic science, right? And a lot of cases are today. I mean, the, the first thing investigators grab is computers and cell phones. So so one of the questions I had is, geez, how, how stupid is Katie Conley is she computer illiterate? I mean, what's going on? The, the answer is basically yes. Yes, she comes into computers and and she comes into the Internet. And she comes into all this stuff later. Not with everybody else like 20 years ago. She just came into into she just Adam got her her first cell phone. Adam tells me he was there when they for, hooked up Internet for the first time in the Conley residence. Yeah. And I don't want to tell. uh all the thing I will take my hat off to the uh, prosecutor here because between the hung jury and the first trial of Katie Conley and the and the second trial, she did a remarkable job um, in sort of ferreting through all this forensic evidence and coming up with what they needed to find. And the things they find, I'm not going to reveal now because they will blow your mind <laughs> to to find out what happened. But I do want to ask you about the fatal attraction moment in the first trial. Um, <laughs> Katie Conley is this, uh, I mean, not only is, we're not sure whether she's clever to a fault or if she's uh, dumb as a post when it comes to things, but she was definitely manipulative. And one of the things she did in the trial was play Sharon Stone, right? Yeah. And basic instinct. Oh, I'm sorry. Basic instinct. That's the one, not fatal attraction. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's the first trial is the jury's made up of mostly males and from what I was told by multiple sources, and those sources are very, very solid sources. Uh, Katie, you know, would uh, Katie's very pretty girl, very pretty young woman. That she would wear these really low cut skirts, and a, a couple of times, somebody in front of the room, in front of the courtroom, caught her giving the some of the male jurors uh, a basic instinct shot, and she wasn't wearing panties. Um, so, you know, and, and we may laugh at that. We may think, wow, that's, you know, that's wow. You know, but that shows you how manipulative that this person is that she's going to, you know, and she played the poor me card. She played the innocent country girl card. She played all those cards, but then you take her out into the hallway of the courtroom and you see a different person. You see someone laughing out there. You see someone getting her hair braided by her sister. You see someone chumming around and playing around. I mean, this is a murder case, you know, so. Yeah. 
Well, it's it's a fascinating book, and uh, you know we're running out of time here. We're gonna, listeners, we're gonna we're gonna jump over to the Patreon channel. We're gonna talk more about uh, writing true crime and podcasting true crime. Uh, that's at uh, Patreon p a t r e o n dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, all one word. Matthew and I are gonna uh, talk about paper ghosts. We're gonna talk more about writing. Uh, but Matthew, before we finish here, just I don't have time for many writing life questions in this segment, but. I like to ask one, I sometimes ask uh, authors, and I'll ask it to you in the context of what you do. What what would you tell your younger true crime writing self something of value that might uh, have helped you based upon everything you've learned since that time? Um, What would I tell myself? I would tell myself, um, that's an interesting question. I would tell myself to focus on stories that drive your passion for writing and investigating. If you're an investigative journalist and you're, you know, when I write a book, I want an exclusive story. I don't want to just retell the trial transcripts. So yeah, I would tell myself to just keep, never stop digging, never stop digging. You're going to know when you need to stop, but never stop digging. In this case here, the the one that resulted in this book, we thought we knew you sounds like that kind of case that uh, the kind of case that you like to dig your dig your investigative chops into. Yeah, it you know, I, I definitely I mean, there was so much information available to me and so many people willing to talk to me that I knew that I could get a really deeply researched story out of this. Um, and the ADA, Stacy Scotty in this just was phenomenal. I mean, she did incredible investigative work herself. Yeah. So listeners, you can find out more in the show notes uh, about uh, Matthew uh, M. William Phelps. He's uh, the author of 40 uh, nonfiction works. He's been on television many times, uh, produced uh, lots, including the podcast we're going to talk about on our Patreon channel. So uh, check that out at charlotteridgepodcast.com. Hey, Matthew, thanks so much for spending time with us on Charlotte Ridge Podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.